we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, in each episode we tackle a different story of the strange, doing our very best to come at it with an attitude which I hope to be critical but not cynical, one where we do our level best to track down original sources or get interviews with people who know what they're talking about whenever I can. So with that in mind, I will welcome you to the show at the moment. It is a the depth of a South Irish winter, the trees are bare, it is milder than uh, probably some of the climates people are listening in from, but it's been Baltically cold uh, and bare trees all around, and for that reason my beverage for this episode is a hot whiskey, so that is made with Hinch whiskey from County Down, which is very nice, and I'm having it with of course some hot water, a slice of lemon, and a little bit of brown sugar in there as well, just to make the medicine go down. Oh, and I've got clothes, of course, in the lemon as well. So hopefully you're enjoying something pleasant while you listen to this. And if it's too early in the day for that sort of carry-on, well, there's nothing wrong with a cup of coffee. Now, a couple of shout-outs to friends of the show before we get started. First and foremost, a massive thank you to Jen from Essex, who sent in a wonderful package to us this week here at the cabin. And inside that package were these absolutely lovely little crocheted Christmas cryptids. So she has made those along to... Um, I believe some designs she, she got online. I then forget the name, name of the company, uh, but I have mentioned them in uh, our socials recently. So these are little gorgeous little figures that she has crocheted. Uh, a, a woman of some talent, clearly. There is a little cute kind of a Christmas alien grey with his, his hat and Santa beard. There's a very cute Christmas Sasquatch with a warm winter hat and scarf. And uh, most entertainingly, there is a Christmas Mothman who comes complete with a little Christmas wreath. So massive thanks to you, Jen. Uh, Really chuffed with those. That's gorgeous. And if you do fancy sending in anything to the show, um, by all means, just reach out to us online and we'll let you know how to do so. Uh, On Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. I want to give a mention to my brother, Donald, quickly. He's going to be on the next episode next week, which is myself and himself talking about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, a little bit about the book and the philosophy behind it, but mostly about the 90s uh, movie version, which you may be aware of. And uh, it's all that one is already in the can, and it's really, really good. I'm very proud of it. So that's going to be an excellent episode. But he sent me in a recommendation this week based on our recent American Militia episode, if you enjoyed that one. Well, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but the episode recently we did about the Oklahoma City bombing, he said, um, for anyone interested in that sort of understanding that mindset for the sort of far-right crowd, he recommends a book called Cultural Warlords by Talia Tavin. He said it's not a nice book, uh, it's quite an upsetting one, but he said it's it's pretty crucial or at least useful in getting your head around that particular mindset and understanding what's going on with it. So I thought I would mention it to anyone who's been following that series and, um, and, and takes an interest in that sort of thing. Quick correction, I had a, a very nice message sent in from uh, Bassa Andere, hopefully I'm saying that correctly, over on Twitter. Um, but amongst other things mentioned, I did a little slip up in a, pr- a recent episode where I meant to say something about the 
the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and instead I mentioned the Priory of Sion, which are not the same thing. They're both sort of well-known in conspiracy lore, but they're not exactly the same thing. So that's an easily made mix-up, I guess. The, it's a little brain flood that happens to me sometimes. I, I say one instead of the other. But with all of that said and done, uh, hopefully you're comfortable, hopefully you're having something nice to drink, and I'll introduce our guest for this episode. We're extremely lucky we have um, uh, somebody who is very knowledgeable about an f- incredibly wide range of things, actually. I really can't believe quite how many uh, interests and professional sort of research topics um, that this gentleman has in up his sleeve and that tie in with things that I'm interested in and things that we've talked about previously on this show. So uh, very shortly, I'll be playing my interview with Dr. Edward Guimont, who teaches at the University of Connecticut. And we're going to be talking about the history of cryptozoology, the hunt for strange animals in the context of colonial and post-colonial systems. So a whole lot of things there that uh, I'm incredibly interested in. So, without too much more ado, I'll roll up the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so I'm speaking with uh, Edward Guimont uh, about cryptozoology, about dinosaurs in the Congo, maybe a little bit about uh, mastodons and mammoths as well. Um, Edward, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work? Absolutely. So, as I said, my name is Edward Guimont. I got my PhD at the University of Connecticut, uh, where I'm teaching at uh, the regional campus in Stamford, Connecticut, where if you watch The Office, it's right <laughs> down from where Jim was working in season three. So, <laughs> uh, it's kind of its claim to fame. Uh, but yeah, so my dissertation was on uh, pseudo-history, pseudo-archaeology, and how settler colonialism kind of creates these legends justifying their existence by building off of uh or building off of or reinterpreting or sometimes just inventing indigenous histories that they can appropriate for themselves and the main focus of my dissertation was the city of great zimbabwe and what's now the country of zimbabwe uh you know at the time uh most of what my dissertation covers this was southern rhodesia and how you know, this was a city part of uh, the vast uh, Indian Ocean trade network. It was the capital of a major uh, state in uh, southern or central Africa, depending how you want to define it. Uh, it goes into decline around the time when uh, Portuguese are the first Europeans to arrive through this uh, kind of complicated chain of things. They encounter this city just when you know, it's becoming abandoned. They, of course, think that Indigenous Africans can't build this, it has to be someone else. So they link it back to the ideas of King Solomon and his city of Ophir, where they bring all the gold from, uh, uh, you know, Africa to build the temple in Jerusalem, supposedly. And throughout, you know, this is basically the main case, they're just looking at not just how the legend develops, but how over time uh, it evolves uh, and changed with different political situations in Rhodesia, later Zimbabwe, look at how people in the African diaspora later on kind of uh, white conservatives in the West all kind of interpret this idea. And I built, bring in a bit of uh, related stuff to like uh, the mound builders in the US, uh, the British Israelites to show how you know these worldwide ideas, mainly in the English speaking world, but I mean really throughout the West are all diving in and out of each other uh, and how I argue great Zimbabwe and especially uh, uh, later on in the 70s, Rhodesia, as it's kind of 
dying has all these connections to the new right that's developing in the West also. So all these themes kind of go you know, in and out of mythology, fiction, international politics, uh, uh, and just keep you know building and echoing long after Rhodesia stops to exist, long after Great Zimbabwe is widely acknowledged as a uh, uh, an indigenous African site, which I should point out for most of the time that Europeans uh, you know, are familiar with the site from it's rediscovered in the late 1800s. By the early 1900s, professional archaeologists in South Africa and Rhodesia and Britain, they all acknowledge this was built by uh, indigenous Africans. So it is really a main case of, you know, public belief versus uh, uh, kind of the accepted knowledge of uh, professionals uh, being in conflict with each other. That's fantastic. So you have... You've worked in so many areas that tick my boxes. <laughs> I'm sure we could go off in, in any number of directions, but I, I think I've cited your article previously, Hunting Dinosaurs in Central Africa from Contingent Mag. And um, probably, I think it must have been the, I, I did an episode about The Lost World and Arthur Conan Doyle and the history of last race literature, last world literature. And um, I found this article extremely extremely illuminating when looking at that stuff because it focuses on the creation of these these myths of of living dinosaurs in the Congo, for example, uh, within the within the frame framework of the colonial system that was there at the time, and um, I, I really enjoyed how you're talking about these various monster hunters and how they are kind of fixated on the old, you know, great white hunter mold, and um, how they they they're, they're sorry that they, to them there's this like gap, this period in the mid 20th century when you know, there aren't any monster reports anymore. And they're saying, oh, it's these new nations. They don't care. They don't know how, <laughs> they don't want to go hunting for the monsters when maybe it's actually, you know, maybe you guys created the monsters with your yep. sort of, you know, your leftover colonial storytelling from going back to the days of Haggard and, 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 and Doyle. Can you tell us a little bit about that article, the, the, the uh, Contingent Magazine one? Yeah, sure. So, uh, like, this, my, my dissertation was originally had a some but different focus more on kind of like the politics of a uh, uh, Rhodesian independence. And actually in that I was trying to connect it originally with Scottish nationalism and the SNP that's developing at the time, which may still be a, a work down the line because I have a lot of research on that. And actually at the time when I was going through a lot of the SNP archives uh, in uh, London, Edinburgh, uh, you know, the SNP is established as a party around the same time as the Loch Ness Monster emerges. So there's a lot of discussion in the S, you know, kind of tongue-in-chief stuff, but proof that uh, Nessie is emerging because she knows that, you know, Scotland's independence is arriving. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's, I, I laughed a lot. <laughs> I know, it's, it's, it's an early mascot of uh, Scottish nationalism. But uh, so I switched to kind of more of a focus on this pseudo uh, history. So, I mean, I kind of been familiar with Great Zimbabwe and like the Ophir myth. Uh, you know, I'd read uh, King, uh, King Solomon's Mines, just knew a lot of the, some of the general stuff, uh, uh, you know, some of the ancient alien stuff, which of course is you know, everywhere. I don't think it comes up as, uh, yeah, I mentioned some of the David Icke stuff, but yeah, so of course <laughs> ancient aliens are involved in this. But I started seeing more and more stuff like, referencing, uh, you know, Great Zimbabwe or Solomon or Ophir and all these references, which made me a bit interested going into that and kind of shifted my dissertation to be more of that focus. Uh, but as I was doing that too, uh, I forget exactly how it came. Oh, I think, I think what actually happened is so I, 
I've always been interested in kind of conspiracy culture as well. And uh, as like a joke uh, in college, a friend and I started a group called Lizard People for Ron Paul. So uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if we actually, the funny thing is we started, uh, we started this as a joke and then we started getting people like responding to it who we didn't. So it struck some kind of chord. And this is around the time of the 2008 election too, when, I don't know if you're from like uh, in some of the recounts, it was coming out that people were writing in lizard people on the yes, ballot yeah. and all that. <laughs> Yeah, so it was in the air. But so as a, a joke, my friend Hayden gave me a David Icke's book for a birthday, uh, The Biggest Secret. Uh, oh, yes, so I think yeah. while I was working my dissertation, I was just flipping through it. And all of a sudden, he's talking about, uh, you know, Great Zimbabwe, not only being Ophir, but saying, you know, this is where the lizard aliens come from and stuff. But then I noticed he's citing, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Zechariah Sitchin, he's citing, uh, uh, temples, the 12th planet, or not, uh, uh, the serious mystery. So he's citing yeah, all oh, yeah. these, the, yeah. all these other like ancient alien stuff that's specifically African focused in that. Uh, I'd also been kind of familiar with the, the Mokele Mbembe legend as well. And just, you know, general stuff like that. Uh, from child, I used to read a lot of like Loch Ness monster books, a lot of, uh, uh, cryptozoology stuff, although I've never really been a big Bigfoot fan, so that's one thing I've never been into, but uh, but for some reason, yeah, this, I think someone mentioned, like, I, I came across some connection that's, I think it was with a, w uh, originally a reference, maybe in, uh, uh, on the track of unknown animals by Huvelmans, and, but just came across, that uh, uh, led me to Willie Lay's book, uh, who, again, I knew of mainly from the fact, you know, he was friends with uh, Von Brown and Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, actually hadn't been as familiar with the fact he wrote a lot of cryptozoology stuff, but <laughs> I was reading, you know, his entry on the Mokele Mbembe, and he's talking about all of a sudden, though, ancient, you know, people from, you know, ancient Israelites and Babylonians going to Central Africa and building, you know, temples and bringing back, you know, dinosaurs that became, you know, the dragon of that. So all of a sudden, this just opened it, you know, all of this weird stuff is suddenly getting just, you know, connected to, and Willie Lay too, I think he's a big figure. You know, he's another one of these guys who goes, you know, he's originally like, uh, I think he's not a rocket scientist. He's like part of, a, you know, the early pre-Nazi rocket group in Germany. He works with Fritz Lang. He comes to the U.S. No he works way. with Von Brown. And, oh, yeah. It's, oh, yeah, it's just, goodness. And, and you think, said Von Brown as well. He was, uh, I presume. Yeah, yeah, he, he so like works with an Operation with, uh, Paperclip like, guy. Mm -hmm. Although I give respect to Lay because when Hitler took power, unlike all the other like von Braun circle, he didn't stick. So he actually, uh, I think he mailed himself out of Germany to France. A really creative guy. Too. But uh, <laughs> and he wasn't he? Um, he was sort of doing a lot of public PR stuff for like the early space programs in, in America. Yeah, if you ever see like actually, I think some of them got put on Disney Plus. But there's those 1950s, you know, uh, like. You know, mankind will conquer space stuff that Walt Disney produced. And he's in there with Von Brown and Eugene Sanger. So I know he became friends with uh, uh, Arthur C. Clarke and you know, gave a few ideas for 2001. And wow. It's, yeah. So, Again, and actually, fact and fiction, another, you know, in interacting constantly well, just, with this stuff. It's And then the other crazy thing, too, is uh, when I actually got a, my hands on uh, the serious mystery, which for those who don't know, it's, you know, basically the claim that aliens visited ancient Mali and uh, this uh, tribe in West Africa got all their knowledge from aliens from the planet Sirius or a, a planet around Sirius, which on the one hand then inspires Zechariah Sitchin and goes to David Icke. But on the other hand, 
the start of this book, uh, Robert Temple, who made this very influential thing, basically says, yeah, I came up with this idea and I wrote about it to Arthur C. Clarke and he wrote back and he developed this whole idea. I mean, he only mentions in like, I think really like the first two or three pages, but Arthur C. Clarke came up with this ancient aliens, like foundational thing that then dovetails into lizard people, dovetails into the Mokele Mbemba. So, I mean, it is crazy just how much overlap there is in this set. Uh, ex <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've got, I've got one. So he was very influential on this side of the pond in spreading these ideas in the, I think his TV shows were mostly in the early eighties. And I've got a book here based on Chronicles of the Strange and Mysterious, one of his, his TV series. And I actually, you know, if you chronicle the history of these ideas, there, there's, there's Arthur C. Clarke on, on the roof of his, uh, his oh, yeah. home in Sri Lanka. <laughs> Um, he's quite he's quite skeptical as in there like he'll tell in this book you know the writers tell the story and then Arthur C. Clarke has a little section where he usually debunks <laughs> it or at least you know he, his, his, his mind isn't wide open to these ideas. Yeah. he likes entertaining them and he's enjoying them and it's just it's far more down to earth than sort of paranormal television yeah. has become since it, it's it because he goes through like I think early on like I mean, he was much more interested in psychic stuff earlier in his life and kind of like if you look at if you read a uh, childhood's end I mean that's it's all about psychic powers I think uh, Carl Sagan too again you know, like he spent so much time debunking alien abductions but you know, some of the early like writings on ancient aliens or what we would call ancient aliens, even before Von Daniken Carl Sagan was you know saying, you know, it's possible, you know, some of these, you know, Middle Eastern gods are actually aliens. So it is just funny how some of these guys who later on became such firm skeptics, uh, you know, were very much, uh, well, actually, like, in, uh, in the seven, early 70s, when they have the, uh, at least in the U.S., the, they make, like, a documentary adaptation of Chariots of the Gods. Uh, Sagan and Von Braun are both in that documentary. So Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I, I often wonder if Sagan, if, if he's one of these guys who you know, would have been genuinely open to this stuff originally and has just been like, he would be excited if any of this stuff, like I've read Cosmos and yeah, his love yeah. for science fiction is real. He talks very warm heartedly about, um, you know, the Barsoom books and, and John Carter and, and you know, Burroughs. And I, I genuinely believe that he would have been open to this. And, and just over the years, he was ground down by all the frauds and all of the, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the poor evidence. And um, because yeah. he, he's often cited as a kind of a, you know, an evil skeptic character, you know, depending on who's talking. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I think also, it, I think it also shows a bit about how much the field or, you know, conspiracy belief, paranormal belief is, a lot of the nuance, I think, is kind of out of it. You know, it's, uh, I think it's increasingly hard just to become kind of, you know, uh, you know, an interest, you know, a sympathetic skeptic or just someone who's, you know, kind of just interested in the culture. I think it's so much just become so, dogmatic and fixated and uh, uh i think especially the ufo culture even more than uh cryptos i used to be even more like much more into the ufo culture side of things i think it's become just so crazy but just so politically uh far out to the right it's uh you know yeah. it's really hard <laughs> and it's all it's all disclosure now isn't it it's, it's yeah <laughs> and again if you like you read QAnon stuff i mean it's QAnon is basically just taking directly from ufo conspiracy it's just you now a Tom Clancy meets, you know, yeah. uh, uh, Stanton Friedman. Uh. <laughs> yeah, which was, um, what was that fellow's name? Uh, Moore or um, the Behold a Pale Horse. What was his name? Oh, uh, Bill Cooper. Yeah. Cooper. I mean, he went from UFO stuff to sort of straight political conspiracies, didn't he? 
in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, that w- it was the gateway for him. Yeah, and I think later on, even by the end of his life, by the end of his life, before he got shot to death by you know the ATF, oh. or, you know, it's, uh, uh, I mean, it was you know, he. I think he kind of turned pretty hard against the UFO culture. Also, uh, I think probably for not for political. I think he just thought it was just too ridiculous. But. <laughs> Goodness, too ridiculous for Bill Cooper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can we zoom in for a moment on the Mokele Mbembe story, just because yeah. that's something I really, I really enjoyed in the article. So tell us a little bit about like where the origins of that story come from. Let, let's talk about like Hagenbeck and, and that sort of thing. And, and these kind of like, like situate us in the colonial world where this story really comes from. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, this takes place really in the context of the scramble for Africa. And again, just in a very short, uh, you know, capsule summary that you know, starting really in the mid 1400s, Europeans had begun circling the continent of Africa. But for a long time, they had not really gone far into the interior for a number of reasons, partly of which is because prior to the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, Europeans were not really that far advanced, you know, militarily or uh, 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 industrial or economically from African states. So Europeans are basically fighting on the same uh, uh, level as the Africans. So once the Industrial Revolution happens, among other things, this gives the Europeans the chance to go into the interior of Africa. There's uh, the Berlin Conference in the early 1880s, which basically the European powers all sit down and decide, all right, we're going to divide up Africa. So can, uh, it was at least supposedly meant to slow down the advance into Africa, but actually accelerated it greatly. Uh, it's really within about a decade amount of time that 90% of Africa gets conquered by the Europeans. So again, the European conquest of Africa, for the most part, is not a long drawn, it's very rapid, which means also that big chunks of the continent are nominally claimed by Britain, France, Germany, but in reality, Europeans have not explored a whole lot of it. So there's big chunks of the interior of the continent where Europeans are having you know, to explore even after they formally claim the territory. Uh, the, and this exploration is you know, not always state-sponsored. Uh, I mean, you know, we probably all know the story of uh, you know, Stanley going across the continent, being funded by newspapers, but big game hunters also are a major you know, kind of, you know, uh, non-state actors who, you know, uh, Germans, British, uh, you know, Frederick Le- Leopold Seller. acting, I suppose, as his own person, owning the country. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, you know, they might, you know, consider themselves British, they might consider themselves advancing the British Empire while they're at their base, just, you know, their goal is to hunt exotic animals or big animals that they can't get back in Europe. So there's a lot of indigenous knowledge also that goes into, you know, them determining where these animals are, what stories are. Uh, and of course, people back home in the imperial metropoles, uh, London, Paris, Berlin, they're interested in demonstrating their uh, uh, imperial conquests as well. There's a great German uh, uh, political cartoon at this period, you know, shows all these drafts from their uh, colony in what's now Tanzania, you know, all like, you know, wearing Prussian helmets, you know, <laughs> marching in lockstep, you know, you know, the Germans have civilized Africa like oh, this. But, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, <laughs> wow. it's a great metaphor. <laughs> but uh, so uh, the Mokele Mbembe legend as such, because again, much like with the Loch Ness Monster, other things, 
afterwards people will go back and kind of add you know previous stories onto it or try and you know add other things but the general uh you know origin of the story is carl hagenbeck who i think was a collector for the uh a, a zoo in uh germany uh but so you know he's writing about uh his efforts uh you know hunting animals finding them uh uh him uh Carl Schombeck, I think also another uh, uh, German guy. Uh, they're operating in uh, the Rhodesian colonies, which are technically owned by Cecil Rhodes' uh, British South Africa company. So much like India prior to uh, you know, the Great Rebellion there, you know, this is you know, considered part of the British Empire, but is actually administered by a for-profit company uh, uh, headquartered in South Africa. So even there, there's a bit of... Uh, uh, remove there. So it is kind of this hinterland area where it's, you know, who is exactly in charge, you know, what the political boundaries are, are a bit open. Uh, there's not a lot of Europeans there. Uh, so it's this very liminal state from the European perspective, which also gives, you know, this kind of exotic remove to it. Uh, but so these reports start coming in in, you know, 1909 that, you know, Oh, you know, we were talking with the natives and they were talking, you know, oh, they have these, uh, you know, big animals that, you know, uh, aren't elephants, aren't rhinoceroses. And so, you know, it usually goes like we showed them a picture of a, uh, you know, brontosaurus, as they would uh, you know, call it at the time and say, oh, yeah, it's, uh, this was it exactly. Uh, uh, so these ideas start percolating that, you know, native people have identified living, uh, you know, dinosaurs in Africa, which again fits in with, uh, the cultural view of Africa at the time as a place that civilization had forgotten, uh, especially Central Africa. You know, Northern Africa is a bit different. There's the history of uh, you know, connections to the European and Asian worlds there, uh, Egyptian civilization, but Southern Africa had a different reputation of being, you know, a truly kind of out of touch place where evolution, you know, possibly, you know, had been forgotten or, you know, the scientific races and questions over, you know, are Africans actually even humans? Or this is a separate evolutionary thing, much as happens in South America also uh, around the same time. And again, around the same time when uh, the lost world is being written. So there's this idea that both metaphorically, but also maybe even literally Africa is a place that has been cut off from not just civilization, but the forces of, you know, evolution and evolutionary change elsewhere. So from both kind of this, what at the time was a scientific perspective, although is no longer recognized as such, but also from just kind of the prevailing cultural notions, it made sense that Africa was this primitive place, you know, where the deep past was preserved. So of course it makes sense that you're gonna find, you know, uh, ancient life there, dinosaurs as well. Uh, uh, and so from this starts to come other, you know, efforts to actually hunt these creatures down, uh, if they even exist. Uh, and just this idea that, of course, dinosaurs are gonna be existing in Southern and Central Africa. Amazing. I wonder, do you think it's relevant that, like, like these initial reports are in that part of the country, sort of on the East, and then like the, the, the myth as it is now is usually more associated with the Congo and with, it's almost like this idea that it doesn't really matter where, like the myth just migrates from one country to another because to outsiders, it's all, it's all homogenous. Yes, uh, I think that's definitely, I mean, you can find, you know, Mokele Mbembe in Ghana, you know, it's complete, it's like, it's basically just become kind of like a, 
you know, maybe seen as like a catch-all phrase, but it's very similar, I think, you know, to stuff like the Yeti and the Bigfoot and Abominable Snowman, where you have all these, you know, supposed indigenous legends from very removed places, you know, very different cultures, but they're all lumped together as being African legends. Uh, uh, you know, it goes to the whole idea of, you know, uh, Africa just being a, a single place. Uh, it's a good website for uh, news on uh, kind of uh, political uh, writings on Africa called Africa as a country, which, you know, facetiously named, but, you know, it's, uh, I think it leans into this idea, you know, to outsiders, Africa is just one place. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's uh, the Mokele Mbembe legend originates in what's now Zambia. It's mainly found in, uh, you know, the Republic of the Congo now, that region. But again, it's been, uh, you'll see people mentioning it all over the uh uh, con or at least outsiders referring to sightings all over the continent. Some of them even say, you know, there are these different legends, you know, uh, from Ghana. Sometimes you see arguments like uh, the old uh, Akan weights and what's now Ghana depicting dinosaurs and just trying to integrate all these different, you know, so there is a bit of a recognition of in some of these cases that there's these different uh, uh, cultures with their different beliefs, but they're all reflecting, you know, the same thing. The other thing too is, you know, the Mokele Mbembe itself, you know, is supposed to be this, you know, uh, you know, like a patasaurus type thing, but, you know, you'll see it applied to some other dinosaurs that are you know, very different in shape as well. And just, there's this whole, you know, if you, if you track down every supposed, you know, like living dinosaur legend in Africa, I mean, the whole, uh, the whole biosphere, you know, the whole <laughs> Jurassic Park is there basically. <laughs> what is the significance then um, of this story being, amplified it maybe like in the so so it begins as a very colonial turn of the century sort of a it, it could fit right in with the adventures of you know professor challenger in the lost world or um you know percy fawcett or something yeah. like that but then this continue like in the 50s cryptozoology becomes a thing and i i'm really attracted to this period because this is kind of like the high point of respect for science so therefore this is yeah. an ology it's a science thing this idea I got from the work of Jeb Card, who we'll mention again later on. I think it's, uh, you know, in a way, I think it's the context of like the 50s and 60s in the Mokele Mbembe or that, you know, this is the decade of African independence where just as African colonization happens in a very short period, the collapse of colonial rule in Africa happens in a very quick period with a few holdouts. Uh, it's the fact, you know, between 19, you know, 57 to 68, most of the continent becomes independent. So again, it's a very fast uh, process. And of course, the civil rights era is happening in the West as well. So I think there's part of this is looking at kind of trying to reevaluate uh, African legends and, you know, look at them in this new context of being something that's equal as well. You see this also with uh, interpretations of Native American legends in the U.S. with Bigfoot. Uh, so on the one hand, I think there's this cultural aspect that's happening in the 50s and 60s, but also, you know, with the scientific, you know, uh, scheme, I know the, ar the argument that, you know, this is uh, the era in which we're trying to create these classifications, they're trying to be accepted as a science, but science also is, you know, this is also the decade of the space race and, you know, these huge advances in other Know, science of what seems possible. I mean, we're talking about, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and Carl Sagan. This is when they're writing kind of outside stuff too. So the frontiers of science seem to be accelerating fast as well. So it seems like, all right, maybe there is, you know, still stuff to be discovered also. Uh, I think also there is some degree too of when these African colonies become independent countries, 
at least to some extent, they're cut off from the former metropoles, although you know, to what extent they actually, you know, there's still a lot of European involvement in the former colonies. But again, by building up this political boundary where there wasn't before, I think also it gives kind of a new sense of, okay, now this is still, you know, suddenly it's, it is a bit more uh, of a frontier, you know, there is more barriers. So it can kind of create this sense of, you know, we have to go explore and, you know, discover stuff, especially on behalf of uh, the people living there. Because as you know, we all know, African countries can organize their own science, they can organize, you know, their own education systems. So I think it gives kind of a justification or uh, that that builds into the idea of, uh, you know, we have to learn about these new countries you know, for their uh, inhabitants, whereas before it was, you know, maybe we have to learn about our colonies for our benefit. Uh, you know, the end result, not too different, but uh, the rhetoric around the justification, uh, the role of science uh, uh, in promoting uh, in promoting neocolonialism, just as it promoted colonialism as well. You know, we were talking about uh, the Arecibo telescope earlier. You know, uh, the Cape Town Observatory in uh, South Africa, science justified, but also benefited from a lot of colonialism. I think the idea of you know. Uh, whether it's cryptozoology or kind of more mainstream uh, ecological preservation, zoological studies, uh, science gives you know, a justification for continued involvement in the new independent countries. Fantastic. You talk a little bit in the article about uh, how some of the people involved in, in the search for these creatures are, are kind of bemoaning uh, like a barren period after the countries become independent uh, and and there is a few fallow decades and then in the 80s it's it's kind of taken up again by some some new people uh, Roy Mackle and people like that you know and like there's the sense that you know Africa suddenly becomes you know this you know hellhole of civil wars and stuff after independence uh, and part of this is you know like, like in the case of the Congo you know if you look at the whole history of the Congo after independence it's the CIA's first attempt to assassinate a foreign ruler you know yeah. Belgian mercenaries killing the secretary general of the United Nations I mean I mean so there are there's a lot of political instability after independence and a lot of it comes from either the fact that you know Europeans just immediately pack up and leave and you know loot the country on their way out or just, you know, come back immediately and get involved, you know, destabilizing the, you know, democratic systems that do get set up. So, you know, in periods of civil wars, of, you know, coups, uh, of course, there's not going to be a lot of, you know, room for this kind of stuff. But again, uh, in the 80s, too, you know, this is the decade of when the new right has emerged. And I think this is becoming more understood now, but a lot of this development of the new right in the 70s builds off of kind of the dying gasp of colonialism. Uh, I mentioned by 1968, most of Africa has become independent, but the big holdouts are in the South, you know, South Africa, Southern Rhodesia, the Portuguese colonies, because at this time, Portugal is still, you know, a fascist dictatorship. Uh, so there are these holdouts in Southern Africa and uh, you know, the wars of independence being led by, you know, ZANU and what's now Zimbabwe or even the ANC in South Africa, um, the various groups in what's now Angola and Mozambique. This had a lot of resonance for right-wingers in the West, uh, especially the U.S. This is right after, uh, you know, the loss of Vietnam. So there's a lot of rhetoric of, you know, we lost the fight against communism in Vietnam, but we can help win against communism in Rhodesia. So there's this whole you know, ideology that's emerging, connecting you know, opposition to independence in Southern Africa with the development of you know, 
the new right, the new populist right that's emerging uh, in the West. And so part of this is uh, uh, kind of this legacy. Uh, there's an, uh, uh, two authors, uh, Gerald Horn and Kyle Burke, who have written more on this uh, in recent years, if anyone's interested in looking up their works. But uh, you know, part of the new right also is this religious renaissance, and especially you know the explosion of young Earth creationism, uh, and so this heavily starts to influence uh, the cryptozoological uh, you know explorations, where a lot of these new guys are young Earth creationists who think that you know dinosaurs, uh, you know, I've never fully followed this logic because their argument is if they can find dinosaurs that are still alive, that will disprove the theory of evolution, which I don't quite understand that, but that's at least kind of the animating drive that uh, they <laughs> profess. <laughs> they have a kind of a, a Gary Larson idea of how yeah. evolution works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, but it's just, yeah, like, I mean, evolution, you know, could still work. And yes, I mean, it's just, I guess it's, you know, like the idea that creatures are created and they never change afterwards, but I mean, Yes, but also you find other creationists think dinosaurs all died on the arcs. So you would think that would disprove or died in Noah's flood. So that would disprove. It's just, uh, it's like with like left-wing politics, you know, the deeper you get into this creationist stuff, just the more sects that start to emerge that are, you know, all convinced that their little version is right. <laughs> Fossil rabbits in the Precambrian is, is exactly. what, would, what would disprove evolution. And so some of these, uh, this is a busy period. In the article, I think you mentioned something like 20 expeditions happen in the Congo alone in, in, in the 1980s. What, what is their relationship to the new, to, to the new powers? Um, there's some interesting political stuff going on there. Initially, it's a good uh, uh, relationship. Uh, yeah, I was reading uh, Roy Mackle's book, uh, uh, it's a Living Dinosaur, which I think he's, he wrote that after his first expedition, I believe. Yeah, it's, uh, so initially there's quite good uh, uh, reception. Again, because I think you know, these are countries where they're trying to get, you know, they have a bad reputation in the West as being you know, these terrible places, but... Uh, if they can start getting, you know, these weird, uh, you know, Westerners looking for dinosaurs, that's kind of a tourism, you know, a niche tourism train. You're not going to get tourists, you know, going to, you know, like, you know, France looking for living dinosaurs. So it's a way, you know, they can market themselves, you know, if you want to see a dinosaur, you got to come to, you know, Cameroon or uh, the Congo, places like this. Uh, I think what happens is maybe, uh, there was an S, there was a guess that you know there was going to be more people even you know and even what this is kind of be like the wedge that would open up more tourism. It didn't really happen. I think also may have to read between the lines. I think some of these cryptozoologists were probably uh, very much relishing the chance to live a uh, uh, colonialist you know experience. I think yeah. maybe they were just kind of outwearing their welcome with this. I'll say I've talked with I haven't know. I've talked with people who have known Roy Mackle. Uh, you know, they said he was not uh, a racist, you know, explicit, all the, you know, he was not a creationist, they were telling me. So, but, but I mean, you know, even with, you know, even if he had the best intentions, you know, people can unwittingly be replicating these kinds of practices. And I think, again, you know, just reading between the lines of what he himself wrote, what other people wrote, uh, you know, people who knew him said, I, I get the sense maybe he was, you know, <laughs> know putting on the uh, you know pith helmet uh, and just uh, <laughs> trying to go back to a hundred years earlier maybe 
I do. I do sometimes get the impression that well, I mean, I read a lot of Victorian literature, and it, it always comes doesn't it? It comes with this built-in assumption that hey, the, the world is our playground, and mm-hmm. there's all these great, exciting places that we get to go and explore, and there'll always be, you know, more adventures to be had. And as as that dries up, you know, people start looking for adventures in in, in new places, and I think that'll maybe seeg into when, when we talk about uh, similar monster stories in, in in North America in a moment oh, and yeah. the frontier, but. Um, I've read some stuff that implies that perhaps like the local people in, in like, like Tele and places like that were kind of got to know what these guys were expecting to hear and would be happy to give it to them sometimes. Oh yeah. Yep. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And again, with, uh, if we could talk about, you know, the mammoth stories in uh, like Alaska, I mean, it's the same case there. Uh, and I think it's also just a feedback loop also, because, you know, the maybe earlier exhibitions will show people pictures of dinosaurs, say, this is what we're looking for. Uh, and then, you know, later on, people say like, oh, you know, like big creatures here. And oh, big creatures, you know, just draw the picture of the dinosaurs that they remember from previous visits. And the new ones will say, oh, this, oh, they knew exactly what we were looking for. How could this? So I think it's some mix of, you know, either just like they get so culturally, you know, kind of polluted with the assumption and, you know, also just playing it up as well to, you know, give the people what they want. Uh, <laughs> In Darren H's book, Haunting Monsters, oh, yeah. yep. talks about how the stories kind of assume that the locals are, are kind of childlike or simplistic and, and they couldn't possibly... Like they can only tell you what they saw and they couldn't possibly have invented anything. And they certainly wouldn't lie because they realize that you want to hear a particular thing and might give them some money. <laughs> you know, it, it yeah. assumes that they're not capable of, you know, being an entrepreneur. <laughs> it's the, the childlike innocence of, you know, the, 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 again, it's part of that colonial idea. You know, they're either, you know, explicit savages or the noble savages, you know, like before uh, the fall from grace, uh, I've heard too, like with the the Mo, like the early Mokele Mbembe sighting, that like, you know, uh, the early people say, like, oh, this definitely, you know, they're not describing a rhinoceros, they're not describing an elephant. I've heard other people say, like, go back and just be like, oh no, like that means elephant, or you know, this this word that they meant you know, to mean monster actually just meant rhino, and just like, so again, it's just maybe you know these uh, Europeans didn't speak the language as well as they thought they did, or just you know were. <laughs> confused but I mean so there's I think a lot of a uh, translation error also which then plays into being like okay they said I you know being like okay I heard the word elephant I think they said not elephant but actually they were saying elephant and just <laughs> there was a film a, a, a bad film made in the 80s about this legend um called baby oh uh, yeah it's yeah, John the- Young in it from from Blade Runner and I saw it when I was very young and it's not a good film I don't think but <laughs> That that scene where they, um, you know, they're they're drawing the shape of the dinosaur in the mud, and and the locals are like, oh yes, I recognize that. Always stuck with me as a, a motif in adventure stories. So now, whenever I, when I go back to older stuff, like I read Haggard and 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 uh, she and and Solomon's Mines, and there's a scene where you know they get a clue as to where the fantastic thing is because the locals recognize that that even as late as Congo with with Michael Crichton and, yeah. and the, the painting of the of the eye. I That's love right. that stuff. It's such a this is really like Campbellian, but that's like your your call to adventure there, and and all of yeah. this is so tied up in like you say the the desire to go back to a, a time when you had these vast open playgrounds available to you and you didn't have to think about it's all. <laughs> it's, yeah, <laughs> I enjoy it, but it's it's questionable. <laughs> yeah, or like even uh, uh was it 
the man who would be king when, you know, the natives recognize the Masonic, uh, the Eye of Providence. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a brilliant. Let's pivot to the, to the North American stuff and the mammoth and, 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 uh, and that, because we did an episode on this uh, some time ago and um, we ended up talking about some stuff that was not that old, maybe 10 years ago, there was an internet clip and yeah, uh, yeah. We, we traced, I, I went looking for details on this and um, ended up with a story from the 1920s from Siberia, I think, and also the, the Tucuman story from 1899. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you, you sent on a paper, which I'll read the name of here. I don't know if it's generally available. It's called Searching for the Woolly Mammoth, a 19th Century Endangered Species. And uh, this is amazing. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, that was just a paper I gave uh, uh, at a con- I'm, I'm working on revising it. for So at some point, that's going to come out for publication. Actually, I gave that on a panel with a uh, uh, Lucas Rappel, you know, who's written a lot about dinosaurs and you know the drive for capitalism and covering them, and also uh, uh, Brian Regal, who wrote Searching for Sasquatch. So he was in on that too. Yeah, it was wow. a fun uh, group to have. Uh, but yeah, it's just. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the Far Side early. I think as a kid, that may have been the first time I came across. I love the Far Side comp. You know, there's always. I think one of my favorite. I think I put this in the PowerPoint slide for the presentation too. Just the caveman with a giant uh, <laughs> microscope staring at a mammoth, saying, "Oh, I can identify. It's a mammoth." And just, you know, just the idea of you know mammoths, just you know, they're all over the Far Side. Also, uh, the way things work, which I loved as a kid. Uh, uh, but yeah, so as a kid, I just knew that you know, there are these giant, uh, you know, woolly elephants that used to live in the ice age and now they're gone uh like in, when it came to thinking about like searches for living ma- i think i'm just reading something a bit about uh jefferson uh thomas jefferson his interest in uh mammoth excavations i remember reading uh uh adrian mayer's book fossil legends of the first americans which really interests me in this it, it connects back to africa too that uh you know, in the early 1700s, the early British settlers and, you know, what, or English, I guess, at the time, settlers of, uh, uh, you know, what became the United States in the South, you know, in these salt marshes, they're digging up these giant bones that they think are, you know, pre-flood, you know, giants from the Bible. And it's the African slaves who are taken from the Congo, who are doing the digging, who then say, oh, no, these are elephant bones from, you know, we recognize those. So, that interested me just uh, on one hand, it's in a way you can say it's, it's Africans who create, you know, the first, you know, the American field of paleontology comes from African knowledge right away, which you don't really ever, I think there's a bit more recognition of uh, uh, that history too. But again, you know, there's a lot of debates, you know, now about, you know, there's no such thing as indigenous knowledge, indigenous science, but I mean, you know, there would be no Alan Grant without uh, uh, those African slaves digging up the mammoth bones. Uh, but then, you know, the idea of, you know, whole background, you know, not fully understanding or debates over evolution and extinction, whether these were possible, meaning that, all right, we found the bones of these giant animals. They must be around somewhere. Uh, and again, going to, uh, uh, you know, relying on, you know, Native American stories, reinterpreting them, uh, uh, so it seemed very cryptozoological to me. And I have a friend, Justin Mullis, he's, uh, he has a paper coming out. I think it's called Thomas Jefferson Monster Hunter, but you know, he's arguing that Thomas Jefferson is the first cryptozoologist and that the field really comes from him. And, and, and when he sent out Lewis and Clark, I mean, they, he, they were looking for some weird things. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it's just, 
you never, and I know growing up in the U.S., you know, in whatever it's fifth grade or whatever, you hear the story of Lewis and Clark. They leave out the fact, you know, they're supposed to find, you know, mammoths, living mammoths to send back to Jefferson so that Jefferson can then show off to the French. Uh, leave out the fact they're supposed to find, you know, these, you know, living Viking tribes in the middle. Just, you know, all this Vikings. weird stuff. That's, uh, <laughs> oh, I read American Interior by Groff Reese, which is about, he's, he, you know, he's a, a Welsh He's in a Welsh rock band called the Super Furry Animals. That's what he's known for here. But he he travelled across America in the in the footsteps of um, some some 1700s fellow who was trying to trace the the legend of Madoc. The the idea yeah. that there is of course a, a white. There's many legends, of course, that there there would be a white race out there somewhere. But there it's tied particular to this uh, legend of a Welsh prince from from uh, medieval times or something. But it's it's an interesting book. But one of many again is you're talking about how the early archaeologists or, or, you know, people didn't want to recognize that uh, Great Zimbabwe might have been made by local people. And, and you have the same pattern playing out in North America, where they refused to believe that, you know, the, these big structures could have been made by locals. And then you get the myth of the mound builders. And, uh, you know, there must be more European people out there somewhere or the wandering tribes. And there's so many different ways in which they're always looking for this self-justification that we got here first. And yeah, it's just like, and like I started doing more research into the mammoth legends after I finished my dissertation work. I mean, I knew a bit about it beforehand, but this stuff, you know, it does not just, you know, parallels between the mammoth searches and the Mokele Mbembe, but yeah, again, the patterns of, you know, the mound builders, uh, so, so-called, you know, the Prince Madoc, the Vikings, all, the, I mean, it's like, it's almost exactly, it's a different context, but it's a very, you know, even the lost tribes are, you know, central of, to both of these accounts, uh, building, you know, the idea of like a frontier culture and, uh, you know, what was Rhodesia, the frontier culture, the American West are very similar. And then again, also, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that in the 1970s when, you know, there's this big change going, kind of the biggest reception of, you know, sympathy towards Rhodesia really emerges in the American West with these, uh, you know, uh, sagebrush rebellions of these, you know, Western farmers or cattle grazers rather against the federal government uh, using some rhetoric that's, you know, if you heard, you know, Ian Smith saying this stuff in 1964, you hear some of the Bundy family saying it yeah. in 2016. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's no different. It's the same stuff. Wow. So um, in the article about the mammoth, you talk a little bit about like the closing of the frontier and, uh, and the, the date the dates are very interesting here so like you're tracing the closing of the frontier to sort of like an 1890 yeah that's traditionally the year when i think it's the federal government makes the announcement that the frontier is over but of course you know this is right only a couple of years after alaska's purchase so it's this ready-made thing of all right we can't go west anymore we can go north and it's also the golden age of arctic exploration especially uh in the U.S., a lot of expeditions started going up there too. Uh, actually, I wrote a completely separate article, but uh, another work on H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and how uh, uh, Arctic exploration at the same time is influencing him. Uh, the great story of uh, you know Salomon Andre trying to explore the North Pole by balloon. Uh, not getting too far, uh, but that's a I'd never really heard of that one before. As uh, some real wild stuff with a arctic exploration of the time but again you know this is when they start uh uh exploring you know, more of a lack or you know going more into the interior of alaska as opposed to just the shore but also this is when 
about, you know, whaling industry starts becoming really big in Alaska. So there's this big influx of, uh, uh, you know, Americans, but also other Europeans uh, into Alaska right when the Western frontier in the U.S. closes. So in a way, it's perfect timing to kind of, you know, just transplant uh, the woolly mammoths uh, metaphorically from uh, the American West to Alaska, especially because if you think about, you know, Alaska is still cold. It makes sense uh, uh, that mammoths are still going to be up there. Uh, yeah, uh, as, we, as we transfer across the land, the, the mythical things have to be pushed further into yeah. the regions. <laughs> it's always just over the next hill. It's in the valley <laughs> over. I think even like you mentioned the Tukman story, the killing of them. I think even, you know, they're talking about, you know, oh yeah, I went to this town and they told me to go to the next town. And that guy said it was in this valley over here. And then we had to go through. The, so uh, the Tukman story is interesting too, because, you know, he's portraying it as, you know, like, uh, I think if I'm remembering, it's been a bit since I've, I think he's portraying it as him relaying a story told to him by a British big game hunter who came from Africa and was like using his experience in hunting elephants in Africa to hunt the mammoth, uh, yeah, so again, it's like, it's all connected right there. Yeah, the colonial link is really explicit there. Yeah. yeah, I think even at the end, he's like, I gotta apologize to the British for not bringing the mammoth remains back, you know, to <laughs> London. So it's like an almost imperial apology for the U.S. getting it. <laughs> I want to talk about the Tukuman story for a moment, just because if you in your article, you kind of frame it as something of a linchpin, something of a, a climax to the, like, you, you make out like there had been this building belief, you know, it starts off with stories of, we found frozen carcasses and they looked so well preserved that it was almost as if they were alive. And then you, you, you say that almost naturally this progresses to stories about finding still living ones um, and the Tukuman story being a sort of a climax to that. I thought that was wonderful. Can you say a little bit about the, the kind of plot of the story and, and where did it first appear and how did people, did people take this as fiction or as fact? Yes, yeah, so it's published in 1899 in a McClure's magazine, which is a fiction publication. You know, but it's the story, you know, people sometimes say it's sometimes see this referred to as a hoax. I don't think it was a, but it's it's a fiction story by this guy, Henry Tuchman. But the the premise of the story is that Tuchman himself is, you know, relaying this uh, uh, account of when, you know, he met this hunter who was explaining him that he, Tuchman was portraying himself kind of as the middleman. But the premise also of the story is that, you know, he's writing this in a world in which people are very, already familiar that mammoths have been discovered and that this mammoth uh, remain is on loan or have been purchased by the Smithsonian. But it's basically this uh, British hunter is going to Alaska. I forget exactly why, but, you know, he shows off some pictures of, you know, his hunting expeditions in Africa and, you know, when he shows an elephant, you know, some of the Alaskan natives are like, oh yeah, I know that. Yeah, it's, uh, that's, I think uh, there's all these, uh, a couple different guys he meets up with, you know, who uh, he was hunting with his son and found the man, you know, this giant mammoth in this, uh, uh, you know, distant valley. So he brings uh, Tuchman's friend to go hunting him. Uh, they eventually have to burn the basically, basically just burn the entire valley to the ground to kill this, you know, almost invincible mammoth, but you know, it's portrayed in the story as this kind of, uh, uh, you know, ecological disaster. The guy's like, oh, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't have done that after he, you know, kills the last mammoth. Uh, but it basically brings him back. It's put on display at the Smithsonian, becomes this big uh, thing. And that's essentially how the story ends. But people read this story and, you know, it's, it is written, you know, very ma you know, matter of fact, you know, like a, uh, uh, you know, it's like a literary, you know, blow by blow account. It's not 
and it's in a first person basically. So it seems like a straightforward hunting account. You know, it's being published in a time when all these hunters or all these stories purporting to be hunters are coming out. And so it fits in with this genre as well. But people thought this was a real story. You know, some guys writing about, you know, as you all know, you know, the mammoth on display at the Smithsonian, here's how it came. So people are just like, oh, there must be a mammoth on display at this. So people are writing the Smithsonian Institute. The Smithsonian has to put this like public notice out saying like, <laughs> we don't actually have a mammoth. Uh, but this is of course coming right after a, uh, like life-size mammoth replicas are on display at the Chicago World's Fair. So there is this kind of cultural context of people being interested in, you know, uh, the megatherium being interested in seeing life-size displays. So I think there's also some of this, you know, maybe they'd seen a picture from the World's Fair and been like, oh, maybe that was the mammoth body that you know, was found. Mm -hmm. but, but for some reason, or I mean, for understandable reasons, people uh, you know, gen genuinely thought this was not a fictional account. This was just, you know, some guy writing about how he gone hunting in Alaska and killed a mammoth. And now you can go to Washington and see it, uh, you know, in the nation's capital. <laughs> I love that you, you mentioned like an, an ecological disaster and there's a kind of a sadness to the story, you know, this feeling like, Oh, we have killed the last mm -hmm. of this majestic breed. And, and this is very early on to be talking about concepts of ecology, you know, as, as a conservationist myself and a, a zoologist, you know, we, we trace officially the movement to much, much later, but, and surely at about this time, people are starting to realize, at least subconsciously, the, the damage or at least the change that's being done to, to the natural landscape. And Editing key in here. I don't wish to make it sound as though there was no conservation movement earlier than this prior to this time. I mean, witness the career of John Muir and the successes in the creation of the first U.S. national parks. Uh, but you'd be surprised how little it shows up in adventure fiction from this time, which I think is the point I'm trying to make. You here. use the phrase um, eco-gothic in the, in the, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I mean, this is a phrase, I came across this uh, uh, phrase actually when looking up stuff for this, uh, uh, art. Yeah, it was a good article, eco-gothic extinction fiction. Let me cite, let me find the author's eco-gothic extinction, just... I've come across the, the parallel concept of uh, like extinction guilt, you know. Yeah, yeah. okay, so uh, eco-gothic uh, extinction fiction, uh, Jennifer Schell is the name. It's part of a wider book, uh, eco-gothic in 19th century American literature, but she talks about a lot of mammoth literature in uh, uh, this article she wrote, but it's again this kind of idea of, you know, uh, the gothic sensibilities, but the idea of, you know, these giant primordial and to, you know, beings, uh, or just, you know, uh, not just like dark forests, but this whole uh, environment, this blending of, you know, the primordial environment, primordial uh, aspects of, uh, you know, the remnants of pre-human, the world before we were there to identify the world and how our actions are now destroying it. Uh, uh, you know, the process of the expansion across the West is, you know, very destructive. The process of bringing Americans, uh, into Alaska is very destructive as well. Uh, it's a great new book out, uh, I don't think I cite it in the article, but uh, Floating Coast and Environmental History of the Bering Strait by Bathsheba DeMuth. Uh, highly recommend this book on looking at the impact of especially the whaling industry on uh, native Alaskan uh, culture, but also the Alaskan environment as well. Uh, so the process by which you know Americans and Europeans beyond that are becoming more aware of uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest, 
the West Coast, Alaska, uh, much like with uh, African colonialism, the pro you know, colonialism created a lot of interest in, uh, of, in Africa, in Europe. Uh, actually, the slave trade is the first impetus of really serious, you know, scholarly studies of Africa in Europe. So it's this process of, you know, the, the very factors that are not only giving a drive, but also the ability to research these areas, these people are bringing with it the conditions that are destroying their way of life, but also just destroying the environment that sustained them. Uh, so it's, you know, it's uh, uh, this, you know, two-headed thing. You, know, you can't, I mean, it's, it's like in science, you can't study something without changing it. Uh, and that's mm. exactly what's going on here. That's brilliant. It's, it's just interesting to me how that, that note of, of sort of guilt and sadness is, is really absent you know, in, in a lot of, I, I find anyway, I, you might, you might know differently, but uh, you know, in, in the last world, in mm -hmm. Haggard, like these characters go have adventures in these exotic places and they, they find extraordinary creatures and they shoot them and that they, nobody thinks twice about it. They're like, hey, that's just the world. You go out and you find these things and then you take their heads back to the Smithsonian and it, no, you know, nobody has to think twice about it. Whereas now this new note of, oh, wait, we realize that we're, <laughs> we're causing. I think it comes across too in like debates over, and this is when, uh, you know, the decimation of, uh, uh, the buffalo herds are really being no and again part of the reason why the buffalo herds are so decimated is because it was policy to exterminate them in order to you know cut off native americans from their way of so it's a deliberate policy but it's around this time when people are are beginning to say oh wait maybe we shouldn't have you know driven this species to the edge of extinction you know the passenger pigeon its extinction's not too far yeah. after this point either uh so i think this is part of a whole process of you know the closing of the frontiers, I think the idea of, oh wait, maybe there isn't always there's gonna be, you know, another hill, another valley that we can kind of plunder, right? You know, we've gotten to the Pacific and not a whole lot else to do. And then I wonder, I mean, I've heard the the kind of then later more formal cryptozoology movement in the 50s and 60s as being maybe a reaction to, you know, the fact that, I mean, that you're in the period then in the 60s when, when people are overtly recognizing uh, you know, environmental decimation, and you've got you've, you've got Rachel Carson and everything, and things are actually starting to change, and, and it's becoming more of a known uh, quantity in, in in the and and that's exactly the point at which you know Bigfoot shows up, and everybody is is presumably like, oh great, there are still yeah <laughs> places to go and hide, there are still places you can go hunting for monsters. It fulfills some kind of need. Yeah, I've heard like a lot of cryptozoologists I've talked to, and you know, they explicitly say cryptozoology is a way to get kids interested in, you know, ecology and conservation and zoology. So they see it as, you know, at least they are, this is a gateway, you know, if you get kids interested in Bigfoot, then they're going to want to save hmm. the environment. Uh, hmm. So they, you know, they, I think they recognize that, but it is also funny that, you know, if you talk to Bigfooters, uh, the Squatchers, there's a big debate, you know, should you kill Bigfoot to bring him back? You know, you know, if you had a chance to you know, to either, kill Bigfoot to prove he existed or not kill Bigfoot, let him escape, which that's such a big debate. And it's just, yeah. it's, it's right back to the Tukman because if he hadn't killed that mammoth, uh, yeah. then no one would have known that the mammoth was real. <laughs> that's a wonderful wraparound. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything we haven't um, covered that you'd like to mention or that's related to this? That... Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think that covers the main point. I have a question for you. So I, feel, I sometimes feel like with this stuff, it's like the same needs or urges are manifesting in different ways, you know, over the years. And what, what do you feel is the most powerful or, or relevant iteration of this today? How is this manifesting itself? 
I mean, I think there is a sense that, you no, know, part it is, again, we want to still have more things to discover beyond what's known. I think you can see this in a lot, not just cryptozoology or even just paranormal culture, but I think it's manifest in so much of politics and science. I mean, even, I think in a way, you know, nostalgia culture is so huge. And I think there's part of that, of trying to go back to a time when, you know, for whatever reason, you hadn't explored as much of the world and, you know, could still, you know, think you know, on the one hand be comforted, but also want to explore. I think also there is just a sense that, I mean, and this year has accelerated that trend, but so much of us are, you know, for whatever reason, you know, going between home and work or just now sitting at home. And I think there is a, an idea of, you know, in an ideal world, just, boy, wouldn't it be great, you know, go through, you know, the Pacific Northwest, you know, live off the land, you know, find Bigfoot and just, you know, or like even Bigfoot is the aspirational dream of just getting off the grid. There's a paper to be written there. I think of Bigfoot as like a survivalist, uh, you know, like anti-government type. I mean, there, there must be someone who's written about that somewhere. Well, I've got, um, I don't know if you know this book, Robert Michael Pyle's Where Bigfoot Walks. <laughs> he's a, um, I love this because he's, he's an ecologist who takes an ecological view of it. Now it's from the nineties and some of it is a bit dated, but he goes to, Bigfoot days, I think, in, in Harrison Hot Springs or one of those places. And, uh, you know, this is a, a snapshot of, of Bigfoot culture from, from the 90s. And <laughs> he eventually, he decides, you know, he, this, these guys are up on stage saying, oh, Bigfoot, you know, he is, he's faster than we are. He's tougher than we are. He can survive out in the woods. And he realizes they don't want to catch him. They want to be him. <laughs> <laughs> well, then now, too, with the idea that, you know, Bigfoot is, you know, this interdimensional being and this, all this spiritual Bigfoot stuff. I mean, I think, you, I mean, on the one hand, that kind of goes back to, you know, some of the early seeds of it from, like, the theosophical ascended masters and how that got, you know, incorporated into the Yeti myth and all that. But also, it's just, I think it's also a need, you know, if we want some kind of uh, moral guidance or, you know, and, and some people, you know, turn to Donald Trump. Some people turn to Bigfoot as, you know, their new spiritual leader. But <laughs> you say a little bit about, in the article, you finish up by linking to the ideas of David Icke and, and stuff like that, which to me personally is one of the big iterations of, of this stuff currently, which is, is more kind of political conspiracy. And, and you make links back to, you know, African lost cities and, and Babylon. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so if any of your uh, listeners are, if they're blessed enough not to know who David Icke is, oh, I think he's come back into the limelight a bit in the UK with the uh, anti-lockdown uh, protests. Uh, but, you know, his big claim to fame is the idea that, you know, everything bad in the world is the fault of these shape-shifting lizard people from, uh, uh, actually, I forget if he, well, he, he mentions the serious stuff, but again, so it's these lizard aliens, the Babylonian Brotherhood that are, you know, the evil forces that uh, keep us all suppressed and all this stuff. Uh, but again, reading through his uh, book and all the stuff he cites, I forget if he mentions the Mokele Mbembe specifically, but uh, I mean, he's drawn from the same, he's drawn from, you know, Zechariah Sitchin, he's drawn from Robert Temple, who he's drawn from a Credo Mushwa, the uh, South African uh, spiritualist, I guess. All of these people are drawn from the same, you know, pool of stuff that the Mokele Mbembe. So even though if he's not directly citing it, he's citing the people who then drew stuff from the Mokele Mbembe, from Great Zimbabwe, from all these uh, uh, 
myths and legends. So again, this, you know, one of the core, I, I mean, I mentioned, you know, there's a study showing that uh, belief in the lizard people is, it's more powerful in the U.S. than third party politics combined, <laughs> uh, uh, which is, uh, uh, may, that may not be, I mean, that was a study from, I think, 2012. So hopefully that's not accurate anymore. But I mean, if you look at how, you know, QAnon is basically, you know, David Icke just instead of lizard people, it's just Democrats who drink baby bloods. I mean, it's not that different after all, but uh, uh, so it may actually be more now, but uh, just all this conspiracy culture, I mean, and really damaging stuff too, because even the people, you know, who don't outright believe in lizards, I mean, David Icke's influence has been so powerful in the last 20 years and the conspiratorial culture that then is so mainstream now. And again, it's, he's drawing from these Mokele Mbembe sources, you know, second or third, but it shows just what a ripple effect all this can have. And yeah, and I mean, given my my online habits, I get ads for the the Gaia website sometimes. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen them, and uh, it's like, wow, this is just a, a mishmash, a melting pot of all this stuff, and there's no attempt to put any discipline into it, and it almost feels like the whole field is like imploding into just turning back into theosophy maybe like yeah. <laughs> it's it shed the sort of attempt to pretend that there is like some sort of scientific discipline going on and and they're just kind of openly going with the spiritual <laughs> side of it which is is a anthropologist at a uh, the miami university in ohio not florida jeb card uh, who's written a lot about this uh, he calls this the puffed the paranoid uh uh, unified field theory. So <laughs> yeah, it becomes more relevant all the time, I think. Yep. <laughs> um, okay. Thank you very much, Edward. Is there anything online you'd like me to direct listeners to, or um, anything you'd like to recommend that they check out if they're interested in this, or any projects you'd be happy to plug? Oh, that's. I mean, uh, I'm I'm perpetually working on actually getting my website up, which uh, is a lot. It'll get there eventually. But right now, I mean, uh, my Twitter is just my first name, underscore last name and anything I, any thoughts that come out of my head tend to go there. Uh, I have a couple articles up here and there. If uh, if you search my name, I'm sure it'll come up. Uh, uh, I mean, the work I'm working on now, I'm trying to get my dissertation (laughs) published in some form. We'll see. Uh, Again, uh, the Mammoth article will come out probably sooner rather than later. I don't know where exactly, but still hoping to double down on that over the break. Uh, And even though we haven't really touched on this, but my main research now is actually on uh, flat earthers and historical flat earth. So I'm going to be, at some point, I definitely have a good book on that too. And again, it's actually flat earthers in a colonial context, a lot of how both anti-colonial, you know, national liberation politics, but also pro-colonial politics in the 19th century both get tangled up in flat eartherism. Uh, so at some point that'll come out as well. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll insert myself and say, maybe you can have me back and talk about that. Yeah, that, that sounds like an, an amazing episode that, for the future. Uh, I, I mentioned to you before in an email that I did, I lived near twice on two different occasions. I happened to live near um, Alfred Russell Wallace, who was, was a you know, Victorian scientist, explorer, hero of mine, and um, got tangled up in, in, in some of the flat earth proofs. Oh. And arguments and debates that about that about that time yeah it's uh i gotta try that at some point uh, that'd be a fun project to do just find a stretch of water and do that but. <laughs> that's amazing thank you so much for your expertise and, and just the context you have for this stuff because we've talked about it before but not in in so much depth with 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 all that amazing context thank you so much
Oh, thank you. I had a great time. Uh, and again, happy to come back anytime you want. I loved it. And that about wraps it up for this episode, folks. Hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. Thanks to you, the listener, for stopping by at the cabin one more time. And uh, on this occasion, a gigantic thanks to Dr. Edward Guimont for his uh, amazing chat and his expertise and everything else that he brought to this today. So until then, feel free to get in touch. Uh, on Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. You can also help us out over at Patreon, where we are, of course, patreon.com forward slash wide atlantic weird so until next time stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object you will prove the existence of the bigfoot or sasquatch by bringing in a body